Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. I am here with Dr. Lauren Welter, a licensed psychologist out of the Iowa City area. Lauren, welcome to Emotion Well. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm very excited to speak with you and learn about emotional abuse. So this is going to be a heavy topic. So I just want to state up front for anyone listening. Uh, there could be things that uh, are triggering. And so if you're someone who's experienced emotional abuse or have maybe witnessed it, just know up front that there could be things that come up in this episode that, um, you know, cause you to have an emotional reaction. So I just want to let everyone know that up front. But I, I have wanted to do a podcast on this topic for a long time. And when I was thinking about who I could have speak to this, I thought of you. I am really uh, looking forward to you, you know, kind of sharing and bringing some things that I think a lot of people don't understand or, you know, don't want to talk about, um, you know, into, into the forefront of conversations. And especially, you know, for the month of February, everyone's thinking about love and relationships and, um, you know, not all relationships are healthy. And I think sometimes with physical abuse, um, it's, it's obvious, right? Um, you can see that there's a bruise on the body or, um, there was definitely a line that was crossed, uh, but with emotional abuse, it's a little harder to detect even for the, the person who's being abused. So all that being said, introduce yourself to our listeners at your comfort level, and yeah. let's kick off our conversation. Great. Thanks, Johanna. So I am Dr. Lauren Welter. I'm a licensed psychologist, as she mentioned. I have a private practice in the Iowa City area. I have a lot of training in working with various types of trauma. So that I, I did a bunch of my training at the VA. So I work with a lot of combat trauma. It's a lot of sexual violence that happens in the ranks of our military. Um, and really, as well as all, all other kinds of trauma, motor vehicle accidents, natural disasters. But I really have a strong interest in all kinds of intimate uh, interpersonal violence. So that's going to be intimate partner violence, domestic violence, sexual violence. Um, and that really is what brings me here to talk to you today. On a personal note, I am a single mother of four, very recently a single mother, and I'm also a survivor of domestic violence. And this is actually the first time that I've talked publicly about that part of my life. It is, um, it's really hard. It's hard for a lot of reasons to acknowledge that, that I've been in a a victim and or survivor of abuse. And that's exactly why I'm here today, because as you mentioned, this um, is happening out there. And I think many people that know me would be shocked to know how difficult some of the circumstances of my life were. And I want to use some of the pain that I've been through, hopefully to help others. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I think is really important. One of the things that I am passionate about now is really helping to provide some education on abuse, on the dynamics of abuse, because if we can't see that it's happening, we can't do anything about it. Right. 
So let's just get started with emotional abuse at, you know, at the most basic level. Um, what is it? How would you describe it to someone? Um, and yeah, yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So what's tough about all forms of abuse, but I think emotional abuse in particular is that it's really a pattern of behavior. So there are things that happen in every relationship that maybe constitute bad behavior. And we could acknowledge like, okay, yelling at someone, throwing something, making insults, you know, all these things happen to most of us. None of us are on perfect behavior all the time when we get upset. But what makes a relationship abusive is this pattern of behavior. So emotional abuse really generically is non-physical behavior that is meant to control, isolate, frighten, degrade, devalue, humiliate, etc. A few caveats. I think it's really important to acknowledge that emotional abuse, there's been tons and tons of research. So emotional abuse is more damaging than physical abuse and more damaging than sexual abuse, period. So whether it's happening to children or adults, the long-term psychological and physical effects of emotional abuse are severe. And yet in our culture, and I think certainly if you are experiencing emotional abuse, there is this downplay. It was just emotional, mm-hmm. right? He didn't hit mm-hmm. or, you know, um, and so that really, I think is why I feel compelled to to talk today about it and to, just to try to help people understand what are the patterns that are happening that make it so damaging. So I, I just to clarify, it's a pattern of behavior. It's not like one time this thing happened and I felt horribly remorseful and I never did it again. Right. That's probably not abuse. It could be, right? It could be an act of abuse, but the, it becomes abuse when it's a pattern. Right. And do you think think because it's a pattern, that's one of the reasons why people who find themselves in abusive relationships and emotionally abusive relationships struggle to see it because it, it's a pattern. And so it almost becomes kind of normalized and it's expected behavior. And it's like, well, but this is always how it works. You Mm -hmm. know, something happens, we argue, we make up, things get really good things get really bad. We argue, we make up, things get really good. And so that is a pattern and it almost feels like it's the way your relationship is just functioning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And um, maybe we'll go through just a, a few more definitions. And then I would love to talk about some of the patterns that are present in abusive relationships. Sure so that people can start to identify them in their own lives or perhaps in the lives of loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about, can you talk about coercive control as a type of emotional abuse? Absolutely. So actually these terms are being thrown out a little and I, I admit that I am not an expert. I am wanting someday maybe to become one in order to help others, but I I think actually coercive control is almost like the foundation. So a definition of coercive control from women's aid and a domestic violence organization from the UK is that coercive control is an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation, and intimidation, 
or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten their victim. This controlling behavior is designed to make a person dependent by isolating them from support, exploiting them, depriving them of independence, and regulating their everyday behavior. So coercive control is actually now a crime that is punishable by law in the UK, Australia, and now five US states. So what that means is that law enforcement officials are recognizing the damage that, I'm using these quotes here, just emotional abuse mm -hmm. can cause. Um, and really coercive control is the foundation of all domestic violence. And as you were saying, it is really hard to see because individual acts look normal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all experienced bad behavior everywhere we go, right? And, and one of the things that makes abuse, and I, again, I'm going to use quotes on like just emotional abuse because, um, you know, there are some physical long-term manifestations that you're going to see in physical or sexual violence that you're just not going to see when it's emotional. But one of the things that makes it so hard is that the perpetrator is directly discounting the impact of this abuse. So um, you doubt yourself, essentially. Yeah. Um, but basically, it's this controlling pattern of behavior that starts out really mild, probably, and then builds over time and escalates. So it escalates typically in type of abuse. So it may start out with, again, quote, just emotional abuse. And, and you know, maybe it's just vague insults or you know, the partner just gets mad sometimes. And then it escalates to other forms of emotional abuse. We'll talk about what some of those are in a little while. It may also escalate to sexual violence. It may also escalate to financial abuse, to physical abuse. Um, it never starts out horrible or right. no one would stay. Right. And so, I think it's also important to note that Someone could be in an emotionally abusive relationship, but never have had any kind of physical abuse brought upon them. Because I think that, I think there's still kind of this uh, thought that if it's not physical abuse, it's not abuse. Or the relationship Absolutely. can't be abusive if there's never been a physical incident. And of course, like you cited, coercive control is a crime punishable by law in only a few places in the world. Uh, and so for someone to, you know, kind of think about emotional abuse as something that is um, wrong and can be proven, we just don't think that way here because it's not something that, you know, you can get arrested for um, in most places. Right, so, right. Like the progress that has been made on the legal front is very new and it's very limited. So, <clears throat> There are people that are being arrested and imprisoned now around the world, um, a few in the United States, and it, it's few and far between, and maybe it should be, right? Because the markers aren't, they're not so obvious. And one of the things that we might get a chance to talk about a little later is that it's very common, actually, for abusers to accuse the victim of being abusive. 
So yeah. there's all kinds of lies and manipulation that happen. We we don't want anyone to be in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Right, right. Um, we, and coercive control is extremely damaging to adult victims as well as their children if mm-hmm. they have them. Um, and so it, it it shouldn't be minimized. And I think this is really important progress that it, it is starting to be criminalized and might make a difference in some people's behavior as a result. Absolutely. Uh, when you were talking about the patterns, I'm just curious, you know, in your work and through your education as a psychologist, do you find that oftentimes once a person recognizes that they are in an abusive relationship, and they can kind of pick up on those patterns, do you feel like their intuition kicks in and they can almost predict or feel the next, the next fallout or the next, you know, big, big thing that's going to happen? I'm just, just curious if. Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so that might be a good place for us to talk about a couple of the patterns that are present in almost all abuse relationships. So, so once people start to understand that there is a pattern that I am in an abusive relationship, I really believe that's when, when healing can start, but healing is a really slow and painful process from this kind of abuse. Mm -hmm. So almost always, if not always, actually, you know, abuse starts after something positive has been established. So there is always going to be this phase at the beginning of a relationship that that's good. Um, sometimes it's, it's really good. You know, we we're hearing a little bit in pop culture about love bombing, that there's this like oh, abundance of like, oh my gosh, you're the most amazing thing that's ever happened. And, um, you know, victims can be seduced and charmed. And I don't know that it has to be intentional on the part of the abusive person, but often that that does happen. And then there is isolation. Almost always there is isolation that's happening in these relationships because otherwise the victim isn't as dependent. Right. So there's some situations that can make, sometimes it's very obvious and I'm going to say intentional on the part of the abuser that they are you know not letting the 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 victim go out with friends not letting the victim talk to family they're moving them across the country so that they don't um get to be around people as much sometimes it's really obvious other times it's it's sort of circumstantial so one example of that would be a long distance relationship that you're gonna get this like big dose of great behavior Uh and then you don't see the person on a very regular basis so what might happen is you start having these abusive incidents and then you have a break from seeing them and then they shower you with all this love and affection and remorse and then the cycle can continue and you probably think more often of the good times and the the love and the you know just the too good to be true feelings and right, you just right. the thing. Well, that that's just it. So it starts with the like this this positive basis, right? That things are good. We have this relationship. We love each other, and then bad things start to happen. And at first, they're intermittent, and typically, if not always, over time, 
the the proportion of good stuff gets worse and the proportion of bad stuff gets better. Mm -hmm. um, there is a really predictable pattern of sort of tension building. Then an abusive incident occurs. Then there is what we might call the honeymoon phase. So oftentimes there's there's apologies, there's remorse, there's begging for forgiveness, um, showering the victim with love and affection, all these promises that it's never going to happen again. Um, and that can happen with emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, any kinds of abuse. And then there's kind of this calm that settles in. But then the good stuff starts to go away. You get less and less of that positive stuff. And, and, and there's this tension building again. And this maybe is what you were asking about. Can the victim start to anticipate that? Mm -hmm. And um, I think actually the answer is yes. And that's a huge reason that the perpetrator stays in power. Victims are scared. Yeah. You can feel it in your body. And so what you do is you change your behavior to try to avoid another incident. So there is a really predictable pattern here. And um, it can look like it's just these isolated incidents, right? And I think it's it's almost like, um, I'm not sure if this is a great analogy, but it, it's almost like, an addict that there was like all this good stuff at the beginning and then this bad stuff is happening and you're like but I know this good stuff exists so you just keep waiting for the good stuff to come back right. um and you know depending on the circumstances I can speak for myself for sure I really loved this person I still do and I I know that there's like so much good and humanity inside this person that was harming me so badly and it's very, very hard to wrap our minds around. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot going on brain-wise that might be helpful for our listeners to understand a little bit. So, you know, one of the most important things that I guess I'll say is that we are um, biologically dependent on others for our well-being. So you may know about attachment theory. We are designed as a human species to attach to other human beings. And that is not optional. So when they do studies of, of kids that have grown up in orphanages or kids that you know were like left in the wilderness or even ki kids that have like all their material needs met but don't have love and affection and attunement, they have severe lifelong um, negative psychological outcomes. So in our modern culture, I think we think that, um, you know, kind of like love is optional. You know, we were so technologically advanced right. that it's like, you know, we think we're machines in some ways, and we clearly have conquered the world in a lot of ways, but at a really basic level, we need other people. Mm -hmm. And so in our adult relationships, we are biologically attached to a significant other. Yeah. And we therefore become dependent on them. Their, their feedback to us, their love, their affection um, matters. And it's not like you're weak psychologically for needing that. It's literally a part of functioning as a human being. Just the same way that children can love deeply a parent who is abusing them. Mm -hmm. 
So that really is the foundation of why abuse works essentially and why it is so hard to see and so hard to get out of. Yeah. And I think further down the line in our conversation, we'll talk a little bit about why it's so hard for people to leave their abusers. Yeah. They return so many times, but before we get to that, um, a word that was really, uh, popular in 2022. In fact, it was the word of the year is gaslighting. And I was reading a little bit about gaslighting and the term originates from a movie. So this is just a fun fact. (laughs) The term originates from a movie made in 1944 called Gaslit. And it was uh, a husband and a wife. The man was trying to convince his wife that she was mentally unwell so he could steal from her. So the lights were, were gas, gas lamps, right? And um, he would just slowly dim them every day. And she would say, is it darker in here? And he would say, no, you're imagining it. And so she felt like she was going crazy because she was certain that something in her environment was changing, but he kept reinforcing that everything was fine and it must be her. And so that's where the term originates. And so- just, I think we could do a whole episode on gaslighting, so let's not spend too much time on it, but just what is it, or can you provide an example for our listeners um, so they can maybe connect the dots in an abusive relationship, how yeah, that would work? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, it, I will just say at the outset that gaslighting is one of many types of emotional or psychological abuse, and that essentially it act, they, they act together to create this pattern of essentially brainwashing. Mm -hmm. So the example you describe, or the origins of the term in that movie really portray how you pair just what I was talking about. Somebody that you're sort of close to, you respect, you admire, you're dependent on emotionally starts to have power over you. And then they use that power to, um, alter your sense of reality. So even sitting here talking about it, I have to admit that I'm, I, it, it's shocking how that can happen to mm-hmm. someone who is otherwise, uh, you know, functioning well in my life. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, that's where so much of this shame comes in. It's like, how did that happen to me? Um, so I, we, we can talk about that in a minute, but I just, I just want to sort of say that to any listeners that are like, well, you know, that wouldn't happen to me or who feel shame because it did happen to you. It happens Mm -hmm. because our brains are wired to literally look to someone else for validation reality. So when someone is repeatedly denying and changing your reality, you will literally start to doubt yourself. So that's, that's the goal of all of these forms of abuse and gaslighting in particular I would almost say it's like foundational to emotional abuse um, and coercive control because it happens often and it it it's just this little shift of reality, right? It's throwing you off course. So some examples of gaslighting, there can be this sort of generic, like that didn't happen. You know, someone will bring up like, hey, um, three weeks ago, this thing happened and it's really been upsetting about me. It's like, that didn't happen. No, you're, you're misremembering. That's wrong. Or, um, you always do X, you always, uh, yell at me. And, you know, and the victim's like, but 
I'm not the one yelling. You're the one yelling. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to happen where they tell other people or you're going to couples therapy and they're telling the couples therapist, you did, you did this thing. And you're like, I didn't do that thing. So it's like, it's this double whammy of, um, you start to doubt yourself, even if it's just a fraction. And then you start to get really upset or angry even because your, your well-being is threatened, right? You're like, it it makes you crazy. I mean, and that, that's why that term has come from that movie and has now become, um, fairly prevalent in pop culture. I think it's misused sometimes, but it is happening a lot in these relationships. And if we can start to see that it's happening, we can step outside of it. Do you feel like oftentimes in situations where someone is being gaslit, they start apologizing for things they didn't do or, you know, they something. So I think earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, most people have an idea of what is acceptable versus unacceptable behavior. And I think oftentimes in abusive relationships, someone would say that's absolutely unacceptable behavior, but over time, things just kind of shift Mm -hmm. and tolerance for that unacceptable behavior increases and increases until you kind of completely lost yourself. And you're like, what, what is going on? But then also I think because you're so confused because of the gaslighting, uh, you start to maybe feel, you start to believe that maybe you have done something wrong. And so you start apologizing for things that aren't actually your responsibility. Absolutely. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think all of that's true that typically, well, I think there's a few things. One, sometimes you actually start to believe it or a part of you starts to believe it. Sure. And usually we find at least over time in in an abusive relationship that uh, one of the markers of an abusive relationship is that the person will never take responsibility. So they they blame you for everything. Everything Mm -hmm. is your fault. Nothing is their fault. And I I think one of the patterns that you might see in like a victim survivor is a willingness to take responsibility, a willingness to say, all right, I did do, I I did raise my voice or I, I was a little naggy or demanding or critical or whatever. They're willing to take responsibility. And then as you're saying over time, they start to think maybe I need to take more and more and more in combination with the fact that if they take responsibility, they won't be abused as much. Right. So sometimes it's an actual belief like, oh my gosh, maybe something is wrong with me. Maybe I do deserve this treatment because I did that thing. Uh, And regardless, there's an an intuitive understanding that if I um, act in a certain way, I will experience less abuse. And that is coercive control, right? That when someone, it's someone else has control over my behavior Mm -hmm. based on these acts that, you know, harm, degrade, threaten, isolate, humiliate, devalue me. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other examples of abuse you'd like to give? I know there are so many and there's so many rabbit hole here, but is there anything else? Yeah, I'll highlight just a couple. I mean, I think that um, if we can just keep at our forefront that what psychological abuse is, is it's brainwashing. So it's, it's this 
combination of devaluing the partner, devaluing the victim, and at the same time making them dependent on the abuser. So it's it's really like this double whammy. So there's tons of things that happen or, you know, types of abuse that work together to accomplish that mission. Um, uh, one that is really common is the silent treatment. So it's literally like refusing to talk to someone, refusing to engage with someone unless they act a certain way. So again, it's it's controlling the victim's behavior in harmful ways. So back to this attachment theory idea, um, the silent treatment is, is one of the most damaging things you can do to someone's psyche. So they did these studies that in, I think it was like in the 60s, um, they call it the still face experiment. And mm -hmm. if any listeners want to Google it, there's a few clips on YouTube that they're so powerful. So they basically take these babies oh, I've and, seen and moms I've seen and it. they, um, so they're, they're generally like healthy, well-attached, well, you know, established mm -hmm. uh, parent child relationships. And they tell it's, it's moms that they use, but it could definitely be a dad that the child is attached to securely. Um, and they tell the moms not to respond. So the babies are, you know, happy and laughing and the, and the mom just has a still face. And it takes about 30 seconds. That's not very long for the baby to completely fall apart. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean about attachment is, is just so integral to our functioning as a species that with 30 seconds, a baby is going to be hysterical when the mom or, or dad or, you know, other attachment figure does not respond to them. Imagine, you know, what that does when your partner is intentionally refusing to talk to you for sure. days. Um, it's really damaging. So that's, that's the silent treatment. Stonewalling is similar where they refuse to talk about an issue. And, and often they're going to refuse to talk about an issue while blaming um, so all these things sort of start to work together. And really, you, you said earlier, the victim just ends up feeling so confused and and so anxious. Um, what about uh, lack of boundaries? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not going to have any boundaries if you're trying to avoid being abused. And, and so... Um, I think that can show up in so many ways, Johanna. Like abusers. What are you don't thinking of? Boundaries. Sorry. I'm just thinking like abusers don't respect boundaries. No. no. So it's going to be there's there's a sense of entitlement often. Like there's very different rules for the abuser than for you. I mean, yeah. and, and and again, it's sort of like gaslighting, right? So then you might go and say well, hold on, you're telling me that, you know, I'm not allowed to go out and see my friends, but you go out and see your friends whenever you want. And then they're going to twist that back and, you know, somehow make that your fault, that you're too, I don't know, needy, demanding, the, or they'll just deny it outright. Right. Um, it, it, it's really complicated. I have to admit that even in this moment, as we're talking about this little, my head is spinning. Yeah. And then I just, I'm, I'm thinking of like the concept of post-separation abuse mm -hmm. and how oftentimes people might believe that once they 
you know, physically leave the abuser. They don't live in the same residence. They don't live in the same town, mm -hmm. same state that the abuse ends and physical violence and sexual violence. Well, it depends on what type it of might. violence, but mm -hmm. so physical mm -hmm. violence can, um, be more likely to end if you physically leave a relationship. But I'm just thinking about holding boundaries mm -hmm. maybe after you separated or, or, or in the process of taking a break from the relationship. And sometimes the boundaries aren't respected. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's very, very hard to leave an abusive relationship and to recover from an abusive relationship. And you're absolutely right that the abuse will continue until the victim survivor does something pretty dramatic. And even if there is no contact between the abuser and the victim, the effects are long lasting. Sure. So one thing I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about physical abuse, I, um, is I, I think it's worth commenting that even in a relationship that has minimal physical abuse, the effects of any threats of physical abuse or actual physical abuse are, are deep and long lasting. Sure. So just to clarify, physical abuse includes hitting, punching, kicking, et cetera, but it also includes punching holes in things, banging your fists on the table, you know, making a fake gun and pointing it at you, throwing things, Punch, yeah, I said punching things. So it's it's any threatening gesture. And again, back to our understanding of our brain, we register threat quickly and deeply in our psyche. So in order to survive as, as a human species, we need to be on hyper alert for sure. any threats to our well-being. So even a small amount of physical violence is extremely effective in controlling behavior. So that is going to, that it's just going to last for a long, Absolutely. long time. And, and, and it escalates. So when we think about that cycle of abuse that we talked about, where we have an incident, we have a honeymoon phase, we have calm, and then tension is building, 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 you know, initially it might be that there's an act of physical violence and it's a year until the next one, mm -hmm. then that time is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and it doesn't require much for the perpetrator to get the victim to start behaving. Right. Right. Any kind of threat. And, and also, I mean, there, there's threats of physical violence, but there's also all kinds of other threats that happen. I'm going to kill myself. That's a common yeah. one. If you don't do X, I am going to kill myself. Um, I'm going to take, I'm going to file for divorce and I'm going to take your kids away from you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell your work what you're doing. What do you think people, I mean, this is, this is something that I experienced. What do you think people are going to think about you as a psychologist if, if they, you know, know that you're abused or actually in my case, it was if they know that you're abusing me. Um, so it, there's all kinds of threats and any threats of physical violence just have this deep and lasting effect. And it's not exactly psychological. Like you might not think he's going to kill me or he's going to hurt me. And it could be a, she also, I, I, I actually wanted to clarify that at the beginning. Um, there are male and female and all gender victims of abuse. Um, and most, most domestic violence is perpetrated by men. So 
it not exclusively there are absolutely women that are abusive but most abuse is perpetrated by men towards uh, women and other men and children okay yeah thank you for clarifying that let's talk a little bit about leaving because we kind of segued to that uh, when I was talking about boundaries and you know oftentimes people think that when they leave whether it's physically leaving or ending a relationship that the abuse will improve slash you know go away but uh I've heard and I don't remember is it on average seven times it takes on average seven times for an individual to leave their abuser that's a number I've heard I honestly don't know where it comes from but it it seems reasonable it's gonna take Mm -hmm. a number of times because of this pattern so I I think the first thing that I'll say is that the number one reason that people don't leave abusive relationships is that they love their partner. Sure. So they do not want the relationship to end. They want the abuse to end. Right. So when hopeful that it will change, that something will change. Absolutely. And, and the combination of the perpetrator uh, discounting and minimizing and denying the abuse combined with, um, you know, these intermittent honeymoon periods, right? Where they're like, love you, I'm gonna change, everything's gonna be great, makes it really hard to see the pattern and to understand and trust that, you know, it might be better to be outside of it. I think the other thing I'll say really clearly at the outset is that no one knows better than the victim what is right for their situation. Yeah. So it is true that because of the way attachment works and the way abusive patterns affect the brain, meaning so physiology, like a physiological fear, as well as dependence on the perpetrator, combined with that attachment that we talked about, um, makes it really hard for the victim to see clearly what's going on. So sometimes people on the outside really truly can see it more clearly. They can see the pattern. They can see that it's not healthy. Um, They can see that it's scary a lot of times and that the victim is at risk, but that doesn't mean they know better than, than the person living the situation, what is right for them. So it is the most um, at risk a person is in an abusive relationship is when they try to leave it because the relationship is about power and control. So when someone tries to leave an abusive relationship, they are literally not under the power as much anymore of this abusive person. Um, So the abuser starts to feel threatened. Right. Because they're losing control. Absolutely. So um, 70% of homicides in domestic violence occur after the victim has left. So any big transition point increases risk for the victim and and their families. So children certainly, but you know, also extended family or friends. Um, so some of those transition points are um, filing for divorce, moving out of the house, um, getting a restraining order, a final custody agreement, any of those things really increase the risk of serious injury or death. Um, and so, isn't there some kind of staggering statistic that 
oftentimes homicides that occur in these situations, the homicide is the first act of physical violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't have the specifics there, but it reminded me of something I wanted to be sure to say that if you are in an abusive relationship and you have any hint of concern about your physical safety, it is probably a lot worse than you think it is. So take that seriously. We'll talk in a little bit about uh, safety planning in these kinds of instances, but I know um eh, trying to think how much I want to share. Um, you know, I was told by my lawyer who heard like a snippet of a conversation that I did not think was that bad. So this this was a recording that I made um that I, I really didn't think it was that bad. We had sort of talked about that sliding slope and and mm-hmm. you start to accept more and more. And this was in the context of a really bad period. And I happened to have my phone. So I, you know, grabbed it for the first time. And I, I didn't think it was that bad. And I shared it with my lawyer and she was so alarmed. And she said, you know, in her 25 years of, family law, she's, she's never been more scared for yeah. someone. Yeah. So and that does take an outsider's perspective or opinion because you've maybe just grown accustomed to this type of treatment. And so for you, unfortunately, it felt like a normal type of communication. I mean, I knew it was bad. I knew that, I knew that it was bad, but I, <laughs> you, you love this person. You right. live with this person. You have children with this person and a life and a dream. And you, I mean, well, I'll speak for myself. I could not wrap my head around this person being as dangerous as uh, other people thought he was. Sure. Um, and I, I, if I haven't already highlighted this, I think one of the reasons that coming on this podcast today feels so important is that for me, it was actually, you know, the same lawyer that I had called and then I, you know, called again three months later and called again three months later when, when, as this cycle was occurring, I knew there was scary things happening in my household. And I was, I was alarmed. I was concerned. I wanted it to change, but she was the first person that said to me, you know, Lauren, you're, you're the mental health provider here, but you're in an abusive relationship. And for me, it was this huge shift and it did not happen right away. It took months because the cycles continued and and things were getting worse and worse. But it was a huge shift to go from seeing that there was clearly bad behavior um, to seeing that there is this pattern and this pattern is continuing and it is getting worse and it is escalating and there is nothing I can do to change it. Yeah. So for me, the understanding of the patterns of the types of abuse and and starting to step back from that instead of trying to change it step back from it is the only way that I was able to see clearly enough to take steps to to leave and for me in my situation that was the right thing and I hope that you know myself and my children are safe psychologically and physically um, but back to our discussion of of leaving, that's not always true. And if a woman's intuition or a man's, I, it's not just women, um, 
that are victims is that I'm not safe. That's probably true. Yeah. And there's so many other factors, right? So, um, one of the other major forms of abuse is using children as pawns. So it's, it's threats to, sometimes it's to harm the children. If you don't do X, I'm going to hurt this kid. A lot of other times in, again, the quote unquote, just emotional abusive situations, it's more like, I'm going to, I'm going to take your kids. You're never going to see them again, or I'm going to get all this custody, or I'm going to, you know, turn your kids against you, which happens a lot in abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lies um, and manipulation of the children in an attempt to harm the, the adult victim. Yeah. I want to just go back quickly to a point you made earlier regarding, you know, ultimately it is up to the individual in the relationship to choose whether or not they were going to leave. And I think that that's important because while other people have opinions and different perspectives and maybe can see the situation more clearly, I think and I, I'm just, this is an opinion. I have no factual evidence to back this, but if an individual can come to their own conclusion that they need to leave versus other people are encouraging them to leave and they feel like they would be disappointed if they would return. I feel like when someone can come to that conclusion on their own, maybe they would be more likely to stick with their decision because instead of going, well, you know what, maybe maybe my friend or my mom or my therapist was wrong. You know, maybe they can say, you know, I came to this conclusion on my own and no matter how long it takes or how hard it is to come to that conclusion, I think maybe uh, in the end, they, they may have more peace with it, knowing that they made that decision versus we're just um, afraid to um, let people down. Cause I think, you know, depending on the type of person you are, if you're a people pleaser and you know that none of your friends approve of this relationship, your parents don't approve of it, you know, maybe through therapy, or if, if you, if there is a lawyer involved because of a divorce or custody, those people don't approve. I think it becomes challenging to understand like what you want and how you want to navigate the situation. So, um, certainly yeah, I easier think said than done. Right. But just, I, I wanted to say that I, I do think there's so much empowerment when you own a decision yeah I I think that makes me want to say out loud how much shame victims are carrying and just Mm -hmm. so if there's anyone listening that has a loved one that is in an abusive relationship maybe you do see it clearly maybe you do think it's harmful for them they need your support. Yeah. So I actually, I I might be wrong. I don't have statistics on this either, Johanna, but I actually don't think it's going to be very common that a a victim is going to leave because someone told them to. Okay. I think it is so hard to leave that they just won't do it. But what will happen is that they'll stop talking to those people. They will get more isolated with this abuse that's escalating and then with their own shame. So when Typically, when someone tries to leave and then goes back, there is a part of them that knows, A, other people don't approve of this, and B, I don't approve of this. I don't Mm want to go back. I feel weak. I feel stupid. I know in my gut what's probably going to happen. But every time, I I guess it can go both ways. You can get more and more beaten down each time you leave and, and go back and or 
probably depending on the approach and, and the environment and the kind of support you have, you can get stronger. Yeah. And, and that's, I think what makes someone ultimately leave. So yeah, you're, I, I think where I would absolutely agree with you is that the decision is not going to stick unless the person is ready. It is incredibly difficult. So a few things that maybe are worth mentioning right here is um, when a victim tries to leave, abuse escalates all kinds of abuse, it will escalate because they want to get you back where you were. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be conscious. Like, I, I think that's worth reiterating that I don't think, you know, most abusive people are sitting up there like maliciously pulling these strings, trying to harm someone. Right. I think it happens gradually for them too. Mm-hmm. I'm not excusing it I because the behavior is so damaging. It is so destructive. Um, but when I used to think about domestic violence, that's what I thought. It's this sociopathic, malicious person, and that could never happen to me. And the reality is it's not that it's normal people, quote unquote, normal people that believe they're entitled to treat other people this way. Yeah. And you will see that you will like, um, there's an expert, he's like the leading expert in treating male, uh, domestic violence, uh, perpetrators. And he, he, his name is Lundy Bancroft. And he talks about how they all justify their behavior. They know it's bad on some level, but they justify it because she did that. You know, she, she just pissed me off and she pushed my buttons. And so, you know, yeah, I, you know, punch her and kicked her and call her all these names. Right. So they know what they're doing on, and, and on some level, they know what they're doing. Um, they don't have to be evil and they might be functioning really well in a lot of areas of their life. They might be really well regarded. So I think that's another of the huge barriers to people considering that this is happening all over the place. Um, one third of women in their lifetime will be a a victim of stalking or domestic violence. I don't have great statistics on men because men underreport. There's so yeah. much stigma. There's on more male. stigma for them to come forward than there so is. So much stigma. Yeah. So I I want to be really clear that there are there are male victims. I know several of them. They are wonderful human beings and they suffer in all of the same ways that a woman would, but additional Additionally, because of the stigma, because of the ways we hold a certain kind of masculinity, like how could you be so weak? Like, right, it's right. it's really really hard for men to see this. So again, like the first step is seeing that this could be existing, and then it you know it's much harder to then say this is actually happening to me. Sure. What about um, so for people in these relationships, uh, you know, therapy can be a good approach. I, I'm curious what your opinion is on going to counseling with your abuser. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful question. So, um, and part of a big part of the reason that I'm here today. So I am a trained mental health provider. I have a wonderful individual therapist. I had a really skilled couples therapist that I was working with several actually. Um, most therapists do not have training in domestic violence. I, I might've had like one unit in one course. So I think you the average, and I have a PhD. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think the, the, the typical person believes that 
you know, if I go to a therapist, they're going to know what's going on. Sure. And I have no problem telling everyone that I went weekly to therapy for like three or four years. And all we talked about was the things that were happening in my household. And no one ever said, oh, hey, this is a typical pattern of abuse. There was recognition of the effects. There, there, There was recognition of bad behavior, but it wasn't until I started doing my own research and understanding because a friend was like, I think this sounds a little like abuse. Well, and, and that lawyer, um, that, that I really was able to see it as it was. So often, you know, victims are, like I said, they, they don't want the relationship to end. They want, they want the abuse to end and they think they can make that happen. I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him how I feel. I'm going to, I'm going to show him this research that shows that, you know, uh, what he's doing is abuse. Um, and that does not work. Yeah. So I got a little sidetracked on your question, but I think um, most therapists do not have training in domestic violence and therefore um, they're not going to be as helpful as you think they could be or should be. I want to talk specifically about couples therapists. So couples therapists are trained in typically in family systems theory. There's a bunch of different theories, but at a basic root, the idea is that everyone in a family system plays their role and couples therapists are, are literally trained to make it, um, a 50, 50 kind of situation. So everyone is 50% responsible for the problem. And we talked a little earlier about this dynamic of the perpetrator, not taking responsibility and the victim overtaking responsibility. And so what ends up happening is you go into couples therapy And you spend the entire session talking about some false accusation that never even happened. And you're taking response, you're you're trying to take responsibility for your part in this thing that didn't even happen. Right. So I, there, there's this really wonderful um, organization that Annette Oltman's created called the MEND Project, where she, she has a ton of education for, for victim survivors but also for therapists, for the legal system, for um, faith-based counselors that really talk about the dynamics of abuse and why you need to approach therapy very differently with abusive patterns than you do with normal couples therapy. And this is um, the MEND project, N-E-N-D? Yeah, it, 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 she has it like M3ND, but I will send you the details so we can put them in the show notes. Perfect. It has some really wonderful resources. Perfect. Um, so to your, to your specific question, do I go to therapy with an abusive person? Um, therapists are trained not to do therapy with active abuse. However, so everybody knows that, but I think the way we define abuse is in that almost like stereotyped model of, of physical abuse, like this mm-hmm. knockdown, drag out evil person that's abusing this person. Um, we all know not to do that, but I think there is so much hidden abuse, these hidden dynamics that disguise themselves. And therefore couples therapy can be so damaging because essentially yeah. what's happening is that the, the therapist, I think, you know, unintentionally becomes complicit in re-victimizing the victim. 
Mm-hmm. They're giving them responsibility. Yeah. And then they're trying to soothe the abuser's feelings for the things that they did to you. Right. And I think for the the victim, they might feel as though like they see the gross misrepresentation of the circumstances, but they're afraid to say anything in the session or they're afraid to say anything mm-hmm. privately to the counselor because mm-hmm. of the cycle of abuse, knowing right. that if right. they speak up, things will get worse for right. them. Right. Yeah. What ultimately answering that? I'm sure we could talk a lot more about couples counseling and and all of that. But um, what? Let's move on to safety planning. Um, Mm -hmm. If someone is recognizing, you know, this is a pattern of abuse. This is an unhealthy environment or relationship. I'm ready to take that step to leave. What would go into safety planning? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I think at a basic level, you need professional support. So this is what I had said earlier. If you have any inkling that there is a risk of violence in your situation, it is probably more risk than you think. And whether that's consultation with um, a, a, a trained mental health provider who is trained in dynamics of abuse and or a local domestic violence center, you need outside input. So basically you want to move slowly. You want to, um, really have a plan. You want to plan an exit at a time that is going to be least provocative. You want to have safe places to go. If you have to interact with the abusive person for custody and childcare things, you want to um, set up some public neutral locations, potentially allow someone else to take the children so that you don't have to interact with this person. Um, but I, I would really just recommend, I think almost everywhere there are, I know there's a national domestic violence center that has a um, 24 hour hotline. There are local resources. For me personally, it was a huge step when I did call our local domestic violence place. It felt so scary and Mm -hmm. so stigmatizing and was very important for me to realize that I, it it almost empowering step. It was very scary and, and yet empowering to say, this is what's happening in my life. Yeah. It's like, and it's an admittance of sorts. Absolutely. And, and they helped me. I mean, they're, they do this all the time, unfortunately, because it's so common, but walked me through, um, a lot of different things. So maybe I'll, I'll punt on that question if that's okay. And give it to the experts a little bit, but yeah, well, we can link to, I know there's a national domestic violence hotline and Mm. then, um, states have their own. So in the show notes, I'll probably link to just the national hotline since we have listeners from that'd be great. And, and just reminding listeners that taking steps to leave is risky and, Mm. um, you need to know that and you need to, you need to, um, trust yourself on what is right for you and your family. Sure. Well, so to wrap up our conversation, uh, you know, what would you say is, you know, if, if our listeners could take one thing away from this conversation, um, what would you want them to consider or remember whether they're in an abusive relationship or they're not in an abusive relationship, but what would be like the one thing that you hope that people walk away with the knowledge of? It's a really good question. 
I always want to overshare. So I think just the more you understand about the dynamics of abuse, the more empowered you are going to be or your loved ones are going to be to overcome it. And it is, it it looks different in every situation, of course, but there are some really predictable patterns. So that cycle we talked about of, you know, the tension, building the incident, the honeymoon period and the calm, like that will repeat over and over and over. And if you can start to watch it, it, it's going to give you back some of that confidence in yourself and trust in yourself that has been eroded over time because of the abuse so that you can start to figure out what I might be able to do about it. I think the other maybe thing I'd say alongside that is um, abusers don't change. So there is so much hope in victims, especially if it's in a long time partnership or marriage that we're going to get, get to love, get to steady, get to healthy. And Again, Lundy Bancroft, that expert in working with male abusers, he is very clear that very, 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 very few people change. The only ones who do have a combination of legal consequences and family and friends who are not tolerating behavior. Sure. So that doesn't happen very often. You know, I I can say in my cases, I was not willing to go allow let's say legal consequences, because I love this person and I don't want anybody to know what they're doing. I just want them to be healthy and I want us to be happy. And, um, so it's really hard for so many reasons for victims to hold perpetrators responsible. And because of the way we categorize abuse as, you know, a personal, it's a domestic issue. We're not going to touch it. We're not going to talk about it. And we're going to blame the victim. We're not going to blame the perpetrator. It's a victim's fault. People are not holding perpetrators accountable. So for me, there were, I'm saying way more than one thing here. I recognize that, but um, (laughs) there, there were some really hard realities I had to touch into in order to be able to consider leaving and then ultimately leave my abusive relationship. And um, understanding that, you know, this is not going to change, that there is nothing I can do to make him see my reality. There is nothing I can do to make him stop treating me this way. Um, and he is going to lie to other people about me. Like that is happening across the board that like there have been blatant, gross misrepresentations of reality that have turned people against me that I needed that when I was um, in a really scary, unsafe position, worrying about the safety of myself and my children, I needed those people and they're not there for me. Yeah. So you are not going to convince your abusive person to stop being abusive. Um, and, and you don't have control of the narrative you that don't they share, right? That is so yeah. hard, so yeah. hard. But but also the abuse isn't gonna stop. So some people do. I mean, I'll, I'll throw some hope out there. Like some people sure. can really reckon with their own behavior under those circumstances that Lundy Bancroft talks about with 
support of someone who is going to hold them accountable. So he's really clear, like what we're doing in therapy with abusers is not acknowledging their feelings. That's what, uh, sorry, therapists are trained to do. We're going to acknowledge your feelings. Mm -hmm. No, we want them to feel the effects of their action. We want them to feel remorse and empathy for their victims. That's not how, that's not what they do. So it is possible. Some people, you know, can change and do change, but it's very rare. And most typically abusers go on to abuse someone else. Sure. And, and they have before you too. So I think one thing, if there's listeners out there wondering, like, am I in an abusive relationship or, you know, I'm starting this relationship with somebody new, you know, look at how they treat people around you. Sometimes, sometimes it's, um, it is unique to the romantic partner, but most often they're treating everyone pretty poorly and they will mistreat your children because this is about attitudes and entitlement and power and control. And if you stop giving it to them, they're going to find it somewhere else. I also just wanted to say, um, I think when you went uh, on to talk about how it's, it's very hard for abusers to change unless there's legal consequences or they have people in their life that just are no longer willing to enable or tolerate their behavior. Um, I just wanted to mention that, you know, I think oftentimes when, when we go back to patterns and if there's a pattern of abuse in the relationship uh, and it becomes a predictable pattern and then someone chooses to leave that relationship and lo and behold, that motivated the abuser to all of a sudden change overnight and do a lot of work and uh, finally do the things that you were hoping they would do. Uh, just remember the patterns. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it is so when you love someone, it is so easy to h- hope and believe yeah. that, oh my yeah. gosh, that was their rock bottom. Mm-hmm. That that's going to change the situation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's just not the case. And yeah. so Almost like if it feels too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Yeah. One thing um, I heard in my journey that was really helpful, because the other thing that happens is that, you know, your your relationship ends. Sometimes they leave you. Sometimes you leave them and they go on and find someone else and it sure. looks perfect. Right. And, and you do have those feelings like, oh my gosh, they didn't change for me. It must have been my fault. Um, if someone is changing their behavior they are going to treat you better. They are going to have remorse and they're going to make amends. So if they are still mistreating you while projecting this image that everything's perfect in their other relationships, whether that's with a new romantic partner or the family, friends, your children, if they have not changed their behavior with you, they have not changed their behavior. And the reason this stuff is so hard is that behavior change is hard. Yeah. So- any kind I, of your change, you know, any. Absolutely. So I, I, I have a lot of empathy, probably too much to be honest, Johanna, for, uh, for people that are abusers. I really do. I really believe that most of them do not want to act the way they do, but for whatever reason or reasons, they are unwilling to do the hard work that real change requires. Yeah. And you know, the reason I'm saying I have probably too much empathy is that the damage is so severe and so lasting to adult victims as well as child victims. And these patterns pass cross generations. So for me, maybe I'll end here if that's okay. 
we can talk, I'll, I'll keep talking all day, but one <laughs> thing that, that um, just shocked me and, and then kept nagging in my head is I learned that 70% of boys who grow up in abusive homes will go on to be abusive themselves. And I have three boys and that is so scary. Mm-hmm. And I don't have full control over anything that happens in my children's lives, but I want to do anything I can to break those patterns. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge and your personal experiences with us. We are going to uh, link a bunch of information in the show notes. So we will put, I know Lundy Bancroft has a lot of great, mm-hmm. so we'll link to that. We'll link to the MEND project. You have your own private practice in the mm-hmm. Iowa City area, so we can link to your website. Do you want to give a shout out to your business? I can. So I, I have a, a small group practice called Prairie Home Wellness and Counseling, and I've got offices in the Iowa City area, as well as in Monticello, Iowa, with a number of wonderful therapist that I'm that I'm honored to get to work with and um, hopefully help others heal from all kinds of things. But for a lot of the reasons that we discussed today, abuse is really near and dear to my heart. And um, I hope that others can suffer less than I did. Yeah, well, we'll definitely link to your website. So if anyone from those areas is interested in finding a counselor or finding more information about this topic, they can connect with you there. But thank you again, Lauren. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to have you on Emotion Well. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emily Wancombe.